Welcome to HRI's Next in Health podcast. I'm Trina Sideros, and I lead PwC's Health Research Institute. I also lead the firm's Business Insight Sectors team, which produces thought leadership on everything from financial services to energy to technology. And I'm Igor Belakronitsky. I'm a principal with PwC's strategy arm called Strategy End. And Trina and I are here with Glenn Hunzinger, who leads our pharmaceuticals and life sciences sector, and Nick Donker, who leads our health services deals platform. So Nick and Glenn, in every Fast and Furious movie, there's a scene where they turn on nitrous oxide and it makes all the cars go a lot faster. And it seems like when we look at the deals world in health over the past year, someone has turned on the nitrous oxide and we're just seeing this tremendous acceleration of pace and volume of deals. And so we're hoping today to hear from you an insider's view on what are some of the tailwinds that are driving these deals? What are some of the headwinds that are in the way of these deals getting done and where things are headed? So maybe just let's start with the tailwinds. Glenn, what are the tailwinds that you're seeing that are driving this increase in deals? Great. Thanks, Igor. Thanks, Trina. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here again. And this is certainly a very hot and relevant topic. So we've got a good business environment right now. When you take a step back and say, well, why is M&A so buoyant right now? And you look across, you've got a good business environment. You've got the willingness to invest in debt. The capital markets around equities still performing very well. And just broader asset allocation, you know, private equity and the ability to raise funds and funds that go out and invest in deals has provided a good broader landscape on sort of asset allocation and just, you know, the amount of pure dollars available to do deals, to fund deals, to act as barter for deals. So that's a great backdrop. When we look at just why companies are doing, you know, fundamentally they need to grow. And so inorganic growth becomes a way to do that. More importantly now, I think we've just seen deals really as a catalyst for transformation. So every company needs to transform in some way, shape or form whether it's continue to add scale, diversify new products, new offerings, new channels, you know, whether it's geographic or otherwise. And what we're seeing now too is just around the technology, what technologies are out there that people need to transform their business in order to sort of reinvest for the next wave of growth. And so within the form and life science industry, great capital markets, the ability to raise capital debt or equity is great. And you combine that with on the PLF side, we see over the last five years, science has really been tremendous. When you look at oncology, cell and gene therapy, rare disease and otherwise, you know, the ability to use big data there and that supply side of companies and companies coming up with great breakthrough therapies really puts together some pretty good tailwinds around funding the need for growth and a good amount of technologies that are the next wave of growth for our industry. So. It's a really good backdrop as far as the tailwinds for the sector. And I'll pause there and I'll kick it to my buddy, Nick, who will cover off on the health services. Yeah, Glenn, thanks so much. All spot on topics on tailwinds. And what I would add from a health services lens perspective is that as everybody experienced uncertainty around the pandemic, what a lot of the peers, providers, and even private equity healthcare investors from a services perspective used the pandemic to understand was where they were going to shake out in ways one and way two. And I think during that time period, they got to exactly where Glenn was referring to, which is their strategic rationale for growth, how they were thinking about growing in the future. Deals clearly from that perspective of doing deals came out of that, both 
strategic reevaluation. And I think that lens, coupled with all the factors that Glenn talked about, whether it's excess dry powder from private equity, whether it's strong corporate balance sheets, both on the for-profit and not-for-profit side, as well as everyone sort of pulling deals forward now, because there was a pent up six or seven months of where nobody really knew how deals were going to play out. Nobody knew what that market was going to look like. I think once the key started, to use your fast and furious analogy, once that key started, everybody's driving at a rapid pace. So a lot of good tailwinds here from both PLS and health services. So from what you guys are saying, it sounds like there are really powerful tailwinds driving all these deals, driving the volume. I'm wondering, there must be some headwinds as well. And so Nick and Glenn, can you talk about the headwinds? What's standing in the way, if anything? Yeah, unfortunately, it's not all rosy picture out there. Uh, great landscape we provided. The tough challenge right now is valuations are super high and people are conscious of not wanting to overpay or pay at the top of the market. Competition is super fierce and everyone's getting aggressive because they all have to act on their strategic agendas. And so trying to figure out the right balance of taking on risk, particularly when you think about the formal life science sector, a lot of the times people are doing acquisitions on pipeline products and taking binary bets on products, being able to get FDA approval to be able to be commercialized and result in sales. And so balancing that risk taking and those binary bets becomes so, so, so critical. And particularly now when you think about where the capital markets are and what the prices are and companies needing to grow and how do you place the right bets in the right way to balance that risk appetite. And then the other thing I'd say is just doing a deal and maximizing the value. You have to be able to do the right deal at the right price at the right time. And right now in our industry within pharma life science, certainly when you look at the pharma side, there's a lot of great organic growth. So that need to do a deal isn't as prevalent. It's not that, oh, we have to do something. They want to do the right deal at the right time. And a lot of these businesses are going through transformation themselves. And so thinking about adding in more to that stream where they all want to transform, there's a balancing there on, on their own internal org to make sure that they're putting the right capital into the right places and resources. And M&A isn't the only way to create value. The only thing I would add from the health services perspective, because I think all that was said around chasing the deals and multiple accretion and things of that nature are spot on. But from a peer provider perspective, the unique element that we often see during election cycles is unknown about who our next administration is going to be. Well, we were feeling the bear of that brought from August, September of 20 up until the actual election. Now that that's been put in place, Things like the ACA that are always out there with legislative challenges, things such as the current administration's view on competitive markets and landscapes. A lot of the large health system deals that have been announced may, and we're not sure about this because we're not in Washington here and I don't want to pontificate, but there's going to be a heightened sense of regulatory review, it seems, around all these large deals to make sure there's continuation of care, to make sure there's price transparency, to make sure there's no gouging of market pricing, and to make sure that effectively the markets are settled such that care and the ability to provide care is not disrupted in any form or fashion around all these deals. And so I think that regulatory uncertainty which usually sort of dissipates soon thereafter the election cycle because we generally have a decent view of what the new administration's goals are around health services. It's still evolving now. And furthermore, I would say even within certain states, we have certain states that have now looked at and talked about legislation in their own geographies where they would potentially want to review buyers of certain assets in the marketplace. So all that means is that all these factors and tailwinds that we talked about are great, but there are still going to be some overarching headwinds that we need to make sure we're understanding and make sure that 
the legal advisors and all the parties involved are taking into consideration as they're thinking about doing deals. That's really fascinating. Let's shift gears for a moment from Fast and Furious to Runaway Bride and talk about some big deals recently that did not get consummated. So Nick and Glenn would love to hear from you. What are the factors that can cause a deal to get scuppered at the last moment? I would say, believe it or not, sometimes to use your analogy, you have the bride, you're off down the runway, you're at the altar. But a lot of times it gets back to culture. And do the boards share the same strategic drive and initiatives and planning and forecasting that they need for both parties to come together? One would assume that valuation, one would assume that pre-closing conditions and all those things would have been heavily negotiated up front. And so with that case, some of the larger transactions I were thought it, and I'm remiss, I can't mention any of those names, but I would say that it got down to a cultural divide between the two boards. Some of it could be mixed in with who sits what where and you know who gives X number of positions on the board, things like that. But inherently, if you take a step back, it's we don't have the same culture. We don't share the same culture. And so we risk synergy, realization, and value capture, all these other things that were predicated on the deal itself by the fact that we may just not get along. And that's absolutely okay when you think about doing that deal, because we've also, Glenn and I both have participated in deals where arguably we maybe have raised our hands in certain fashions and said, you know what? I don't know if this deal is going to last. And you've seen the unwinding of selected assets five, six, 10 years down the road, but Glenn and I have been in the business long enough to know that you're going to see the retread of some of these assets in various forms or fashions as they unwind unsuccessful deals that were actually consummated. So for us, it gets a bit more difficult when culture plays into it. I put it in the category of like, you know, why don't deals succeed and not pre the deal happening, but in general, I'd say, you know, most of the time to have a successful deal, it needs to be on strategy fully. And so why is that so important? Because the world has changed so quickly right now that everybody needs to be able to make sure that their strategies are flexible enough to adapt to that sort of changing landscape and changing world, right? You need to have super involved senior level involvement. You need to make sure that, you know, your valuations and your models are realistic and not to overpay. And so when you have those things misaligned any way, shape or form, and you don't have that detailed plan, value capture levers, cross-functional buy-in with a clear plan to be able to execute and create value and make sure the deal is accretive. That's why deals don't succeed. You need to be able to do your homework. You know, it doesn't sound like rocket science, but you got to be able to do your homework, make sure it's realistic, make sure you arrive the right culture internally that is transparent and gets everyone buy-in. You need to make sure that you have the right culture of the two companies as to make sure that you can set the right landscape for both companies to come together, that sort of combination of both, you know, one plus one equals three. And so having those things and having the right building the blocks fully aligned, while it seems very tactical, without doing those things, deals can sort of go sideways here. So let's sort of pull out our crystal balls a little bit and talk about the future. Glenn and Nick, what do you think we're going to see in the next six months, let's say next 12 months, when it comes to deals and health services and pharma life sciences, what are you thinking? Yeah, I think with pharma life science, overall, we still think it's going to be a very solid M&A market. I'd say it'll be a slightly different when we break out the, the subcategory. So with larger pharma, you know, I think we see the sweet spot of that five to $15 billion biotech deal around the innovative areas where everyone's looking to bolster their oncology pipeline, whether a uh, rare disease, 
certain sort of areas like that. We think that's going to continue to be a sweet spot, whether or not one or two kind of major deals happen by major 50 billion type plus to be determined. That could be uh, 12 to 18 months out. The medtech space we see as a place that's going to continue to consolidate. There's a lot of businesses that are in that medium size that may not have the scale to play. And we certainly have a very fluid and changing payer provider world. And so I see med device as another area where we'd expect to see uh, accelerated consolidation. And then overall, you know, I think when we look at the industry holistically, those barbells of either you have scale and you can operate exceptionally well, and that's your competitive advantage versus being innovative on the other side. I think those sort of barbells are becoming even more important as far as your way to play here. Yeah, thanks, Glenn. And I would say from a health services perspective, maybe we'll pivot back and close with the Fast and Furious example. I think as long as those tailwinds continue around access to capital, very inexpensive debt, trying to recapture that six-month pause that everyone had from a health services perspective, or pretty much everybody had, right, around the unknown at the beginning of the pandemic, we're still playing catch up for that. And as we continue to see multiple accretion, as we continue to see the capital markets as a whole provided an additional vehicle for exit for private equity-related assets, I would expect that we would continue to see a heightened level of deal activity over the next six to 12 months across all subsectors. And clearly, those subsectors that are still ripe for activities such as physician practices and the roll-ups associated with all the subspecialties there, home health care, hospice, the dental, you know, all those fragmented businesses from 10 years ago that are still ripe for evolution. You're going to see them have multiple plays here, right? Do we pull that deal into the market and resell it into the marketplace based on all the great work that investors have done for those assets? Or do we take it public? Is it big enough to go public? We want to use that as a vehicle. So I think as long as there is the deal wins that we have now, coupled with the options that we have to exit those entities, it's going to be a very, very busy next six to 12 months from a health services perspective. I think one of the implications of all this is that if we look down the road, even two years, we're going to see a, a really shifted landscape overall in healthcare with all these deals that are happening. It's also probably incumbent on all these health organizations to think about that. What will the whole landscape look like in the future and how has power kind of been shifted? So anyway, thank you so much, Glenn and Nick, for joining us. It's been fascinating and thank you so much. For more on these topics and other health industry insights driven by policy, innovation, and care delivery changes, please visit our website at pwc forward slash HRI. Until next time, this has been Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.